0: Hey there. Welcome to The Daily Night. This has become a daily show, not to be confused with The Daily Show. The Daily Night is what this show is. It's it's night every day. It's like it's it's like there's night every day. Yeah, The Daily Night. We're the antithesis of NPR here. We are the antithesis of NPR. You know, just when you think that we're going to talk in a steady, consistent, calm voice about issues that concern everybody, about humanitarian causes, we fly off the handle. We actually have some real emotion. We go where we want to go. NPR. Yeah, check out if you're into NPR and the Daily Show. Check out every night's a school night. You'll love it. It'll, it's right up your alley. It's right up your alleyway. Yeah, the host he, he's like uh, he's a lot like John Olivier. He's an angry British man who thinks he knows exactly how America should be run. John Olivier, Jean, Jean Olivier. Yeah, he's got glasses, and it's like, uh, he's like Louis Theroux's defective twin, and he's an angry British man who Americans want to hear criticize their country, because that's where we're at. But anyway, you know, what I'm going to be talking about here is a continuation of yesterday's episode. You know, I've gotten away from doing addendums, because the reality of doing an unscripted show without any notes... I mean, a couple times I've used notes. There was even one time where I wrote things out quite a while ago. But doing an unscripted show without notes, I will inevitably forget things that I wanted to say or examples I wanted to use. And that's just part of the daily night. It's just part of what goes on here. And yesterday, you know, I was talking mainly about how, you know, both personal animosity as well as sociopolitical unrest can lead people to start targeting pretty much innocent you know in innocent entities that are adjacent to the thing that they hate and i used the example of animals and children and i was using some examples of that the way that in particular socio-political animosity bleeds out into like don't you just want to punch that kid in the face or even going after people's animals And with the animals, you know, you see this, you know, I don't want this just to be a reiteration of yesterday, but I I do want to clarify this. With animals, you'll even see it too, with like cattle wars. You'll see it with, you heard of Star Wars, well, you got to check out cattle wars. But no, where there's conflicts, agricultural conflicts over land and boundaries, where someone will kill another farmer's cattle. A cattle farmer will kill another cattle farmer's cattle. And it's not that they hate cows, But it's because they see, they feel that some sort of boundary has been violated and and it does, it becomes this almost political conflict over a border, you know? And so people will target animals to make a point or animals will become collateral damage. Like I mentioned, the dog getting rocks thrown at it by the BLM mob uh, yesterday. And so you have examples like that. And if you pay attention, you'll notice these things. You might not be aware of it, but if you just keep your mind... I mean, don't obsess over this because you'll end up sick. But just be aware of this thing. Because it's not something you hear come up. You hear about animal cruelty, but you don't normally hear about it in this context, even though it's happened forever. And we get little glimpses of it even in civilized society. And of course, I mentioned the personal examples where people will harm somebody's animal to get back at them and things like that, and how you can't completely separate that way of thinking from somebody doing that for some other justification that they feel is important, be it a cattle farmer who's upset that a boundary has been crossed, or, you know, somebody just seeing, oh, that's that's the person I hate's dog. Oh, that's a Nazi's dog, therefore the dog's a Nazi. It doesn't matter if we hurt it. You know, that kind of thinking... Isn't as far off as you think it is. But I was also talking about how children can be targeted. And the examples I ended up using were mainly these teenagers. You know, Gerda von Thunderberg, uh, the girl who's very concerned with the apocalypse, which I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's what she's concerned about. She is terrified of the apocalypse and she is warning everybody that the sky is falling. And I'm not mocking her in saying that. That's legitimately what she is afraid of. And whether you agree that the sky is falling, whether you agree that the apocalypse is coming, it's something a lot of people have been scared of forever. You know, Book of Revelations, the Kali Yuga, Ragnarok. It has a long-running spiritual context, religious context, the apocalypse, and now it's even manifested in secular life, where the apocalypse is coming, and it's because of our sins. Our sins are are escalating. Uh, you know, the end of the world. They they it, it, we are accelerating toward the end of the world because of our sins and Ragnarok, the apocalypse, the the end of the kali yuga. All these things are coming, and so. Uh Gerda, she's riffing on that same note, and I'm not going to you know, condemn her for it, but a lot of people want to. They see her on this platform, and they decide to attack this girl, but she is a teenager. I believe she's a teenager, and the same thing played out, of course, the example I used of the smirking Sandman, the boy with the poisonous smile. Which, if you've seen that kid actually talk, if you've seen the smirking Sandman actually talk, he's got a messed up mouth. Like, his teeth are messed up, he's got a weird sort of a speech impediment, and I wonder if that smirk is actually just disfigurement. That smirk that everybody was up in arms about, I wonder how much of that is just some sort of uh, genetic issue. And that'd be funny if what everybody was so upset about was just the fact that, he had some kind of genetic problem. Like, you're smiling at me. Stop smiling at me. Turns out it's like his, his mouth is just upturned that way, almost like a stroke. It's like he had a stroke or something. But no, if you've seen him actually talk in an interview or anything, he's got these big, huge teeth that are bursting out of his face. And it, his he talks weird. So you wonder how much of that smirk is it was just some sort of physical issue you know really but but i think i've said this before i think i said this when these people were still relevant they're no longer relevant oh you're talking about gerda and uh, the smirk and sandman that's a year ago dude those people were relevant a year ago and time and the news cycle move so fast now that if you're talking about something from a year ago it might as well be a thousand years ago it does feel that way like i'm talking about ancient history here but it's still relevant. Of course it's still relevant. And these people still come up. Their names still come up. But I think I said it before, like a year ago, but uh, they're going to get married. Gerda and the Smirkin' Sandman are going to get married. And they're going to save the world. And I'm going to officiate the wedding. I'm going to officiate their wedding. I'm going to get licensed or whatever it is you have to do. I'm going to... I'm going to become certified, I'm going to become certified, and I'm going to officiate the wedding of these two public teenagers. But I used them as an example yesterday, and just to get back to my point. uh, And teenagers, I think, they operate in sort of a gray area, where they're almost adults, and you can easily think of them as adults, you can charge them as adults, in court in some cases. But I don't know that they were the best example. I think they were a good example of what I'm talking about, where people think that it's okay to relentlessly mock this terrified girl. And they also think... And I mean, here I am. I'm obviously making a joke about her and and him. I think it's a little different, though. I'm not doing it because... I'm not... I don't know. Maybe Maybe I am just as bad as everyone else. I don't know. Obviously, I'm making light of this whole situation, if nothing else. But... Um, I derailed myself because I became very self-conscious, um, but with these people, they're teenagers, so they kind of fit into this gray area, and even though I think they are great examples of the way that we, we end up with this toxic animosity toward kids, because I think of teenagers as kids, even though they are in this, they're on the cusp, you know, teenagers are on the cusp of becoming adults, sort of, now less and less, you know, as childhood extends into people's 30s and 40s now, it becomes less and less obvious that teenagers are on the cusp of becoming adults. And I include myself in that. You know, I include myself in the, in, in having some sort of extended childhood. Um, but, uh, you know, with that, though, it's like... I, I probably should have used more examples yesterday of how sociopolitical animosity doesn't just target teenagers who I admit are in more of a gray area, but it also even goes to little children. And a couple examples that I should have brought up yesterday, there was an example of uh, a kid who I, I believe he was wearing a Trump hat, a Trumpsfeld hat. Excuse me. I know nobody knows what Trump means. What I meant was I was just shortening Trumpsfeld. He was wearing a Donald Trumpsfeld hat, and a man ripped it off of him, you know, which is assault, especially doing that to a kid. He ripped the hat off of him, and there was video of the kid crying. Just a mean thing to do, you know, because people justify that, where it's like, it's it's actually child abuse to put a Trumpsfeld hat on the kid. The real child abuse in this situation is putting a Trumpsfeld hat on the poor little kid. Yeah, so the right, the right thing to do is rip it off his head. Yeah, that's the right thing to do. It's far more traumatic. God forbid that, you know... And yeah, I mean, I think I do have issues with parents overly politicizing their kids, just like I have problems with people politicizing their pets. You know, I do take a little bit of issue with that. I don't think that your child is necessarily the right platform to broadcast your political beliefs through. Kind of like these moms who will post online. Or you wouldn't believe. My kid's a genius. He's five years old and he came up to me and, and he said, you know, uh, why can't everybody worship Ruth Bader Ginsburg? My kid's a genius. It's like my kid came up to me and he said, uh, just what is wrong with Donald Trumpsfeld? I, where does he come up with this stuff? It's almost like he listens to me rant about Donald Trumpsfeld all the time. But no, my kid's a genius. My kid's a political genius. My, my kid's a political genie. You know, people... I, I don't like people politicizing their kids. Not that politics aren't important and not that you shouldn't educate your kid as to how the world works, but I do take some issue with that. So I don't necessarily agree with somebody putting a, a mega hat on a five-year-old. But you look at that, and the guy who comes over, and this was caught on video, a guy ripping the hat off the kid, making the kid cry... That's nasty behavior. That's honestly that guy could have hit the kid, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's assault. Physically crossing that barrier, no matter what you think that hat represents, the idea of touching a kid you don't know. Or if you do know him. But touching a strange a strange kid. And then uh, and just on the opposite end, just because I want to be fair and balanced here, as part of the as part of the daily night, I want to be fair and balanced. You know, I have a friend who lives in Orlando, Florida, and he's definitely left of center. And he was telling me about a month ago how he lives in a heavily Republican area. And he told me in his area that an anti-mask guy saw a kid wearing a mask, I think at a supermarket. And he, I want to say he he spit on the kid. I, I can't remember if he took the kid's mask off but he, supposedly he spit on the kid and said well hey you were so worried about coroni that now you got it and i didn't i've never seen mention of that elsewhere you know i trust my friend he's a smart guy i trust that he heard that somewhere from a reputable source cuz i think some people might hear me talk about some of the stuff that i've observed much much of which like i won't talk about something unless i saw it on video I'm not going to talk about something that I only saw in text because our information overload has resulted in a lot of poor, if not incorrect, information. So unless I actually see video of something, I generally won't talk about it. So I assume my friend you know, had reason to believe this happened. I don't know. But let's just assume it did because I can see that happening. In this current climate where a guy rips a mega hat off of a five-year-old and makes him cry, I can see somebody doing something like that. I can see, you know, somebody who, who's, you know, so upset about masks doing something to upset a kid who's wearing a mask because he sees that kid as a poser. Some man, see he sees a kid in a mask and thinks, you're a poser. You suck. And uh, whether that's true or not, I think that the example still, It I, I believe it's possible. I don't know I'm not going to promote that story like I necessarily like, I, like I, I haven't looked it up even I don't know but the the political the the just this political animosity obviously goes in all directions not just both ways it goes always it's 360 degrees not just left or right up down left right it's all over the place everybody's upset about something. And as a result, they do things to upset other people. They target other people. So I just wanted to bring that up like, like right now. I just wanted to mention because yesterday I was kind of using these teenagers in, as an example, which I think are just as great of an example because I think you should know not to target teenagers. But I just in doing this episode today, I wanted to mention that there are stories out there also of people targeting little children. And they're targeting them because of sociopolitical unrest and disagreement. And that fits perfectly with my topic yesterday. Because I think the topic yesterday, while I stand by everything I said, I don't think it's something that people have thought about. And as a result, it might be kind of hard to render that. It might be kind of hard to render that unless you've already noticed it yourself and thought about why that happens why children and animals end up becoming these, you know, innocent targets in larger conflicts. And it happens all the time. And I have said enough about that. I think I covered, I I think I made the general points well enough yesterday, but I just wanted to include a couple more examples just to make sure, just to make sure you know I'm not crazy. Um, But I do want to continue with this episode It's a continuation of yesterday because I want to talk more about the idea of teenagers and boys becoming men. Because as I've been talking about, you know, people do have a tendency to see teenagers as being on the cusp. They're not quite adults. And when you're 10 years old and you see an 18-year-old, they seem extremely old. They seem like men. I mean, when you're 10 years old, a 14-year-old seems like a man. But then when you're a senior in high school, many people have that experience of walking by the junior high and you see a 13-year-old and you're like, oh, that's a little kid. And, of course, the older you get, the more you start to see people who are relatively close to you in age but still a little bit younger. They start to seem younger and younger to you as you get older. Uh, Your perspective does change. And it's very difficult for us to wrap our brains around... You know, what the, it's very difficult for us to understand the actual distinction between a boy and a man. And you can get into the whole topic of ritual and ceremony and rites of passage, which are important because those were and maybe still are a way to differentiate boys and men. Like, you know, we take our boys to, to a prostitute so he can lose his virginity, and that's what makes him a man. I've heard stories like that. I've heard stories of people, of fathers and uncles taking their sons and nephews and things like that to go see a prostitute. And that's some sort of initiation into manhood. But of course, there's a lot of other things. I mean, there's simply becoming 18, which is official adulthood. Even though it's more of a, a probation. It's like a probationary adulthood because you're not 21 and you can't buy alcohol. So turning 18, it's like you're an adult, but you're on probation. So you don't really feel like an adult. And so we have that. And then, you know, there's certain things you can do at 17. Like there are some things that they allow you to start doing when you're 17 that are only available to adults. Like we start to see 17-year-olds as, you know, something like they're almost an 18-year-old. So we're going to give them certain privileges. But, of course, as time has gone on, it's... Become less and less obvious, and people have entered this perpetual childhood. And part of that was being raised by baby boomers, who told my generation, who told they told Gen X and my generation, the main millennials, "Oh, just you know, we want you to enjoy your life. Don't worry about settling down. We want you to just have have a good time as long as possible. Because by the time you have kids, you know it'll be too late. Have your fun early." And then that stretched into just never actually getting any satisfaction, so you never actually settle down, you never actually come to terms with the fact that you're an adult, and then you end up with this, you know, just mentally twisted generation that says things like, I'm having trouble adulting today, anybody else having trouble adulting today? You end up with a generation that's been twisted into that, these pretzel- souls souls have been twisted up like pretzels and what started out as your baby boomer parents telling you just we want you to have a good time don't worry you don't don't settle down until you're in your 30s and that turns into adulting much you know this awful awful way of talking and thinking and i say this very self-consciously because i don't think i'm some great example of a traditional man who's figured it all out. And I am i don't feel like I'm the adult that I could be in many different ways. And then, but then even just thinking about rites of passage and how sex is seen as one of those rites of passage. And then you have this huge number of incels. And at some point in time, those incels, they would have been paired up with a, you know, the ugly, ugly guys would have been paired up with ugly girls by their parents and they would have married and. You know, maybe had beautiful children together, but, uh, you know, they might have, you know, with an arranged marriage or not not even just an arranged marriage, but with a firmer expectation, you know, that you would start a family and people were looking for that. They weren't they weren't looking for this extended childhood of fun. Those people would end up married. Whether that's better or not, I can't tell you whether that's better for the for their spirits. I don't know, but they at least would have gotten locked into something that is time honored and traditional and not traditional in some useless way, but the very thing that keeps our civilization going, they would be participating in that rather than video games, rather than the Internet. Rather than, you know, reading you know books about whatever it is, you know, some like about how I don't know, I don't need to get into that. I don't need to get into what these people are feeding themselves mentally. But, uh, you know, you would have actually had some sort of structure in place that these people could participate in. And I mean, I'm not surprised that an incel doesn't feel like a man. And I I'm not going to tell you that in order to be a man, you have to lose your virginity. Although I'll tell you, it's probably really hard to become a man if you haven't done that. And I don't place, I don't put sex very high up in terms of priorities, or I don't think it's nearly as important as it's been made out to be in terms of making you who you are. But I, I do think it's, it's something you at least need to get past. You know, and the, the idea of an in and then when you don't because the problem is when you don't get past that, you obsess over it. And that's what's going on with these guys, with these incels is they can't focus on anything else. Because they haven't gotten there they haven't moved past that simple goal that simple biological goal not that I limit it to biology but still they haven't moved past that and as a result they're going to be hung up on it it's this obstacle and they and even if they want to pursue other things you know it's it's like because that's not even an option available to them they're going to obsess over it and and of course become disgruntled And then there's shame associated with that, too. So I I have a lot of sympathy for incels, even though a lot of it is brought upon themselves. They also don't know better. And even though incels have become associated with a certain kind of nastiness, which, of course, they would become nasty, they can't succeed at this basic thing. And I guess incels aren't necessarily virgins. They're also people who... They might not be virgins, but they just might not be able to attract women. And so they may have have accomplished losing their virginity, but it it may continue to be a struggle for them, for their egos, if nothing else. But I have a lot of sympathy for them because they're tortured souls, and I have sympathy for any tortured soul. And I, I think some of these incels could make a lot better use of themselves, but I don't think that lashing out at them, because I mean, they're already lashing out in some cases. But I don't think lashing out at them is going to help anybody. I don't think humiliating them is going to help anybody. And, and there's, there's probably some sort of evolutionary function that like some men shouldn't procreate, some people aren't meant to procreate, there probably is some evolutionary function. Although I don't really see things that way. I think evolution is filled with exceptions. I think evolution is more than just might is right and the strong survive, which I think is why we see so much mutation, which is why we see so many different offshoots. It's why things aren't very homogenous. I think in part is because the exceptions persevere. So I, I, I don't look at incels and think, oh, they're nerds. The nerds just aren't meant to procreate. Yeah, I don't look at it like that, and I think that's hateful. But I, I don't think these guys feel like men, and, and we don't see them as men either. When you think about what the stereotypical incel is like, it's very hard to reconcile that with manhood. And they know that better than anybody. They're more aware of that than anybody, I'm sure, and that's probably a source of their torment. But it's not just them, because, you know, in many cases, we have a harder time recognizing the distinction between boy and man, and not just because we don't have these traditional rites of passage, because, as I've mentioned on recent episodes, I don't necessarily believe you have to participate in these rituals. There are some, like, yeah, losing your virginity, I think, in order to become a man, <laughs> you you pro- know, unless you're unless you're truly a floating orb from the time you're born and and you're born into a monastery and destined to become the Dalai Lama, which I don't know, is the Dalai Lama a virgin? I don't know. But, you know, I think unless the, you're on that path from the very start, unless you are truly the Messiah, and even then, though, even then, but still, I think unless you, you are truly ordained in some way from birth, I think you probably need to, like, get past certain milestones just on that level alone. But I also don't think you need that much ceremony and ritual to become a man. Like, you don't need to become an Eagle Scout. But there were ways that I think helped define—I think there were ways in the past that helped men gain a greater— It helped define them as men opposed to boys. It gave them that definition. It gave them that shape. If you think about people as silhouettes, I think there were certain life events that turned the silhouette of a boy into the silhouette of a man. And one of those was military service. You know, yesterday was Veterans Day. Both my grandpa and my grandma were... uh, They they were both part of World War II. They, They were both veterans. And... You know, you think about that, and that so many men did do military service. I saw something today actually that said that at one point, 60%, it must, I think it was Yale, it was in reference to an Ivy League school. And it said at some point, I think it was in the 1950s, 60% of the male students at this Ivy League school in the 1950s had served in the military. And then something came out yesterday as well, given that it was Veterans Day, I think this stuff was making its rounds. Something also came out where there's some huge percentage of Zomers, Generation Zome, there's a huge percentage of them that aren't even eligible for the military. They're not physically eligible for one reason or another. I know one of the reasons is obesity, some other issues as well, and that's insane. The idea that, I can't remember the exact percentage, But it was shockingly high. And I'm skeptical of studies, you know, because they can be biased, they can be mundane, they can be silly. We learned, we, we spent $10 billion at Harvard to learn that water is wet. When it's frozen, we're not sure what to call it. When it evaporates, we're not, you know, you have these studies that are just inane. But that doesn't mean you throw them all out, you know. And I think that this, even if this was only partially true, just the fact that this many people are ineligible for military service is completely insane to me. And, you know, I'm obviously I'm not a veteran. Obviously I wasn't in the military. I have respect for it. And I see where things like military service, not necessarily military service, but anything that, that puts somebody on a warrior path, even temporarily, you know, anything that just made someone feel like they were a warrior temporarily you know I played football when I was growing up and didn't end up I ended up quitting at the beginning of high school but I think that's you know a certain part of learning what it is to be a man too where you know someone's gonna hit you you're gonna have to hit somebody and you're not afraid of that you're not afraid of that physicality I'm not a fighter but men did used to fight more like I've looked through my dad's yearbook he graduated from high school in 1966 and And one of his good friends in high school was a boxer, and there are photos of him boxing. And you hear about high schools that had boxing rings in the gym. And you could be a boxer through your school in the same way that you would play basketball or be on the wrestling team. You could actually box at that point in time. And, of course, boys used to roughhouse more. You know, there's a physical side of it to being a man as well, which involves roughhousing, and we've actively discouraged that. And we're terrified of people even being mean to each other because we look at the exceptions in so many cases. You know, we we're we are ruled by the exceptions. And, you know, because some kids are severely bullied. We think kids can't be mean to each other at all because one kid might be tormented to the point that he kills himself. And I agree that should not happen. Kids can go way too far. Kids, kids can be so cruel that they can take a kid who might not even have the best home life. A kid might have a horrible home life, and then he goes to school and he's tormented. That's awful. And something should be done about that. But it, again, it's about some kind of balance. you know. Because of those exceptional situations, kids can't be mean to each other at all. And being mean is important. I thank God that, maybe not God, but, yeah, let's thank God. I thank God that my friends, in particular my friends, said some horrible things to me. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, in some cases I don't think we ever moved past it. I have childhood friends, and I think there were some little disputes and stuff that, you know, we're not friends anymore. Not because of that, but I just don't think there was enough traction to, to remain friends. But I look back at, you know, some of those friendships that persevered and where we remain friends to this day, even though we could be mean to each other. But I think that's part of that's sparring. You know, sparring is something you do mentally. And I feel like a jerk. I feel like a jerk off, not a jerk. I feel like a jerk off when I say, like, they've gone too far with this anti-bullying stuff. But I do believe that. When I hear about what they're doing these days to try to remove bullying, which I agree, like full on bullying is not good. But again, it's about a balance. It's like when you take this absolute rule, because there are exceptions where kids go too far, you remove this necessary component of childhood, which is sparring. You know, and and like, I don't consider myself a tough guy. Like, I didn't grow up getting into boxing matches. I didn't, I'm didn't. i not a fighter. But, uh, you know, my friends and I would roughhouse. And I think we would roughhouse sometimes in ways that aren't acceptable today. And I think all that stuff is necessary um, to some degree. And it does help you become a man. And then, of course, there's the idea that, you know, we don't even want you to become a man. It's not even it's not even about, you know, the fact just the fact that, you know, it's, it's harder to understand what becoming a man is today. It's also that there are very popular campaigns discouraging that. And I hate to even use the phrase, but of course, toxic masculinity is one of those. And that's another example of something that is ruled by exception. Toxic masculinity refers primarily to exceptional behavior, not exceptional in the good sense, but exceptional in the sense that there is certain behavior that is associated with men that is bad. And there's a whole spectrum of it. There's very severe behavior. There's severe violence, sexual assault, mistreatment of women that are at the most severe end of that spectrum. There are slightly less severe. You know, it's it's a whole spectrum of behavior. And when people talk about toxic masculinity, especially people who aren't men, especially people who aren't, a lot of the people who talk about things like toxic masculinity are either women or men who aren't comfortable being men. And they'll tell you that you're the one who's not comfortable being a man. You're the one. And the things that you think being a man, the, the things that you think represent being a man are all bad. And so there's that idea, discouraging people from even trying to be what was traditionally called manhood. And so that's an uphill battle, too. And uh, I, I could go on forever about that. But it, it is, of, uh, it's popular, it's It's mainstream. That's not just something that's going on in certain college classrooms. That's a mainstream discussion that is happening virtually all the time now. It seems unavoidable. And you know what, though? It's a great test. This is something I don't hear people talk about enough. But when you hear people talk about how these traits that we associate with manhood are inherently bad, when you hear people talk about that, not giving into that. And not overcompensating either. Like, don't become the most severe end of that spectrum just in an attempt to to fight them. Like, don't become a violent brute in your opposition to these people who use phrases like toxic masculinity. You know, but you know be willing to go into that spectrum like be willing to be what you think a man is and what your idea of of manhood is be willing to go into that without fear but you don't have to overcompensate you don't even have to fight these people you know you don't you don't even have to be at war with those people you can just live your life as you see it as you see fit and it turns out that's probably in line with most traditional men. Like, you you might not be able to fix cars yourself. You might not know how to build a house from scratch. You might not know how to chop down a forest and build your own house. You, you, You might not have those skills and those tools available to you, but you still have the mindset. You still have the capacity. You still have it in you to be that, even if you are a modern man. And I see the opposition to that as a test, because it shouldn't be easy. It, sh- it shouldn't be easy to simply just be a man. It should be something that you get a little pushback on. If you're not getting a little pushback on being a man, I don't know that you're being a man. Because a man is an individual, and I think that's what I'm going to get at here, is that it's not about fitting perfectly in line with what other generations thought a traditional man was. Oh, you didn't. You, oh, so you didn't have a boxing ring in your school? Oh, so you didn't get drafted into World War II? Oh, so you didn't get married at age 20? I guess you're a boy. You know, it's not even about that. I think what you end up seeing throughout history, throughout time is that the most intrinsic aspect of what it is to be a man is your individuality within the framework of manhood. Like, you're not such an individual that you're completely destroying everybody's concept of what manhood is, but you're able to express yourself individually within that. And you are a product of now, just like you're a product of then. All of that is a part of you. All of that runs through that ancient vein and makes you who you are. But that ancient vein blooms in the body you currently have. And as a result, yeah, you're a modern man too. It's why I don't pretend to be some Luddite where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm 34 years old, but you know what sucks? You know what sucks? Smartphones. You want to know what else sucks? Social media. Or... You know what else sucks? The fact that they put corn syrup in Coca Cola, not sugar, not cane sugar. You know, you can be this person who's pretending, you're role playing that you're from another time, and that's in you. You know, you have ancestors who lived then, and they've passed something on to you. And it doesn't mean you can't have preferences. It can't mean you. It doesn't mean you can't like old things, but you also have to recognize that you are a modern man with modern tools. And you see this, I've mentioned it before, with paganism, where people who call themselves pagans in 2020, or 2001, for that matter, or 1990, whatever, you know, in the last, any kind of modern pagan, in the last hundred years, for that matter, how, let's call them neo-pagans, have this idea that it's like, I've got to pretend that I'm a villager from the year 200 A.D., And in order to be a pagan, I've got to wear animal fur for a ritual where we burn candles on a deer skull and spread honey around our garden to commemorate the solstice. That's what makes me a pagan. It's like, no, a pagan uses every tool available. Like, if you look at Varg, you know, he got out of prison and he immediately started making YouTube videos you know, he immediately started using technology. He immediately started using everything available to him, which he always did anyway. But he didn't get out, even though he, he lives this rustic life. And it doesn't matter what you think about him. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on his opinions. I think everybody is pretty much in agreement that that man is the embodiment of paganism. But you look at him, and yeah, he he fixes his. he makes YouTube videos of himself fixing his Jeep. And then he'll make a YouTube video on how you cross a river with a giant Nordic shield on your back, with a Viking shield on your back. You know, so he goes for this ancient thing, but yet here he is making YouTube videos. But he hasn't disregarded the ancient stuff either. You know, he hasn't disregarded the shield. He hasn't disregarded the garden. Disregarding. (laughs) He hasn't disregarded the garden uh, But he hasn't He hasn't gotten rid of the ancient things He's integrated the ancient things Into a modern way of living And it doesn't matter what you think about his views It doesn't matter what your your Opinion on his opinions is That guy is a pagan And I don't think it's any coincidence that He uses everything available Because when you think about The ancient pagans, these people that these neo-pagan groups try to role-play as, it's like, oh, uh, you know, we're going to try to be these people who existed in the year 1000 AD. We're going to try to live exactly like them. We're going to pretend that we are them tonight. And, like, those people were using what was then modern technology. Like, when you look at actual pagans in more rustic times... The things they were using, oh, they had a, a fireplace. They had a wood-burning stove. Oh, they built a house out of logs. Oh, but they're not real pag- Like, there was somebody probably back then who was like, they're not real pagans because they live in a, a log house. They live in a long house. Real pagans just sleep in the woods. You know, there's always going to be somebody who says, the real thing means doing this. The real thing means not using anything modern, but it's like when you role play as a pagan today and pretend that you are doing something timeless, the real timeless process is to use all the tools available to you within reason, within your set of ethics, because there is a set of ethics there where it's like, yeah, you're not going to use something that you think is destroying the earth, You know, I don't think, you know, somebody who has a relationship to nature where their paganism is centered around a relationship to nature, which is pretty much all paganism. I'm a cyber pagan. I'm a cyber pagan. It has nothing to do with nature. But it turns out cyber is nature, too, of course. And you could go on about that, about how everything comes from the earth. Everything was created from the earth, as strange as that is to realize Which I think is why pagans should use every tool available. Do I consider myself a pagan? No. I wouldn't call myself a pagan. Does my life involve some element of paganism? Sure, definitely. But, uh, I don't know, I just see, you know, I think someone like Varg is a great example. Because he's thought a lot about this, but he, he also seems to operate on an intuitive level. And he uses whatever tool is available, uh, but within reason, I believe. Like I don't like obviously he doesn't believe in fertilizer, you know, he's not going to use some, you know, dangerous chemical on his garden, even though that's a tool available to him. So people have limitations, you know, using every tool available doesn't mean not having limits. But uh, it does mean not limiting yourself based on technology alone. But yeah, this was about manhood, not paganism. What does paganism have to do with manhood? I guess I was talking about being a modern man. Yeah, how, you know, you're no less of a man because you didn't serve in World War II. Uh, It turns out we never had men. If you were born after the year 1950, you can't be a man. You're born after 1930. You can't be a man. Oh, in order to have men in the future, we're going to have to invent a time machine, send them back in time so that they can participate in D-Day. Otherwise, they're never going to be men. No, I mean, part of being a man, part of manhood means you can be a man in any era at any time using what's available to you, including knowledge of the past including channeling things that have come before you, not trying to recreate them, not trying to be them. I could never be the man my grandpa was. I could never, I could never be the man my father is. You know, I, can't, I, I literally can't be them. Does that mean I'm lesser? It's certainly humbling when I think about who they were, you know, who they are, my dad. Uh, but, you know, when I think about my grandpa in particular, it's humbling to think about the life that he created for himself. And, and his life itself was humble. He was a humble man who used what was available to him to just simply create a stable life. And, you know, if I try to measure myself up to that, I'm going to come short. I'm going to come way short. But I also see myself operating in a different time, a different place. And manhood is eternal, but... The, the circumstances are much different. And so that's the beauty of being an individual is that you are going to have to find your own path to manhood no matter what. You can't simply mimic your grandfather. You can't simply mimic the people who have come before, even though that's very attractive. And it's not necessarily easy. And there's been a whole return to the classics in recent years. I think that my generation, I think the main millennials, have realized that the stories that were coming during our childhood, while they were good in some ways, and the example I always use is antiheroes, where growing up, it was the age of the antihero, you know, comic books, TV shows, movies, everything was sort of a dark, brooding you know, anti-hero who has all these existential dilemmas, but is nonetheless a good guy. And you saw a lot of stories like that where it was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the protagonist, but I think about all this stuff, man. I'm the crow. I'm spawn. Batman's a little bit of that. I wouldn't call Batman a real anti-hero. Batman's a pseudo anti-hero. But you had a lot of these anti-heroes and stories where it was, it's like, I'm going to look like a bad guy. I'm going to have all these dilemmas. I'm, I'm going to not feel like a good guy, but I'm still going to be a hero of some kind. And I think the inevitable conclusion of that is that many of us who were into that growing up grew up and we were like, you know what? I actually just want classic heroism again. I actually just want the classics. Cuz all this anti-hero stuff, all this existentialism, all this nihilism didn't really get me anywhere. And so you're drawn toward classic literature. You know, you're drawn toward you know, many of these things that that just had their place forever and their place was understood. You know, you're you just why not just go for Beowulf? And that actually gets into my next point here, which is, you know, the idea of charging teenagers as adults. Because there's a little... I feel a little bit of hypocrisy, maybe a little bit of contradiction when I say things like, how dare you want to punch the smirking Sandman in the face? He's just a kid. He's just a 17-year-old kid. How dare you want to punch a 17-year-old in the face? On one hand, that's how I feel. But on the other hand... If I were to hear that the smirk and Sandman killed somebody, I'd be like, charge him as an adult. So there's a little bit of, of dissonance there in that, you know, I see this person as a kid, and you shouldn't want to punch that kid for doing something that you think is just psychologically wrong, for believing in the wrong thing, but yet if that person did something that I felt was bad enough, I would say, lock him up. As an adult, as an adult, do it. You know that's how I feel about that. Where I think seventeen-year-olds should be tried as adults if they kill somebody, but yet I don't think you should punch them in the face for smirking the wrong way. And you know, I this this is a personal story. (laughs) This is a personal story here. I had an experience. I guess it was about five years ago. I would say I was actually probably less. It was probably three or four years ago. Not that it makes much of a difference, but I know that I was already thirty, and I was. I I took a walk. I think I'd had a bad day at work, and I was walking on the this beach near the college. And I remember it because I was. It was sort of a moody walk on the beach. It was. It was a very melodramatic walk on the beach. I was very pensive and reflective and. I was strolling on the beach just wanting to be left alone and there's a cliff there and up at the top of the cliff there's a tree that's at the very edge of the cliff that hangs over and as I'm walking I hear these kids who are up in the tree teenagers and they're shouting down at anybody who's walking on the beach and this one kid and just a really annoying voice just really obnoxious keeps shouting over and over again hey I'm the king of the beach. Get off my beach. I'm the king of the beach. He kept saying that over and over again. He said it to some people who were walking up ahead of me. He said it to me. And I was just not in a great mood. Not in a great place in my life in general, just mentally. And I knew exactly, I knew a trail that would take me up the side of the cliff and would put me right under the tree. And it was dangerous. Like where these kids were at was dangerous. This is a tree that overlooks the cliff. And if you fell, you'd be mangled or dead, and I was like, you know what, That I'm pissed, I know those are teens, although that's a, a, a thing too, I'll get into, but, because uh, I think it might even have been the same day, I had the realization that, I, I kept seeing teenagers in the woods by the college, and I was like, There's, there sure is a lot of high schoolers in the college woods today, and then it hit me where I was like, oh, these people are college freshmen. And they just—they look a lot younger to me now because I'm thirty, and I'm no longer in college. I'm old. I'm so old at age thirty. Oh, it, it, your back starts to hurt. Super Mario is just not as fun as it was. I'm so old at age thirty. Adulting is so hard. No, but you know, it—you it, do get older, and even thirty is older than eighteen. And I kept seeing what I thought were young teenagers, or I kept seeing what I thought were high schoolers in the woods, and I just had this realization where I was like, those are college students. Those are college freshmen, because yeah, six months ago they were in high school. Of course they look like high schoolers to me. Just because they participated in a ritual that separated them from their high school identity and now they're college kids doesn't mean that some great amount of time passes. It doesn't mean they age. Like, you don't go through your high school graduation ceremony and age 20 years. Of course they look like high schoolers to me. They were in high school six months ago. So that was a realization for me. But anyway, these these kids who were in this tree, who I thought of as teenagers, I was. they were like, I'm the king of the beach. I'm the king of the beach. Get off my beach. Get off. You know, the kids was saying that over and over again. I could hear him echoing like a parrot and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to give these kids a scare. And so I quietly went up the trail and I got I climbed the cliff and then I quietly got directly under the tree that they had climbed. And this is very dangerous. Like they're they're like leaning out over a cliff over a very rocky beach. And I waited a minute and I could still hear them shouting down at people and then just when there was a lull, I just calmly said Sure would be sad if the king of the beach were to take a fall. And they had been goofy, laughing, and they just went silent. Because they had no idea that I had walked up. They might have been stoned, who knows. Uh, But they had no idea that I was directly under the tree until I just said that very calmly. Sure would be sad if the king of the beach were to take a fall. Which is really threatening. You know, I, I, I mean my like and then i just walked away and as i was walking away i initially felt this self-satisfaction and then after a couple more steps i just felt low i felt so low i was like i just basically threatened some kids who were goofing off and i realized that yeah they're college students they're men but they're young you know i realized like these were probably 18 year olds these are probably college freshmen but I thought of them as teenagers because they seemed really young. And they're being annoying. It doesn't change the fact that they were being obnoxious. And they don't know what's going on on the beach. Like, they don't know, like, I could, you know, something horrible might have just happened in my life. It turns out I, the only reason I was in a bad mood was probably just some stupid existential feeling. Like, there was probably nothing really going on. It was probably just some, like, Saturn return bullshit. But, I'm, you know, they don't know what's going on with people on the beach. You know, someone might have just gone through something horrible and they went to the beach, you know, for some sort of just to get in touch with nature, get away from life, and yelling at them that you're the king of the beach, blah, blah, blah. That's annoying, and you don't know what's going on with somebody else, and you should try not to bug people you don't know. That said, what I did was stupid and... I just, I felt very low, like a few, it was a matter of steps. Like I went from feeling very self-satisfied, like I showed those kids and even though they were probably 18 or 19 years old, that was a moment for me when I realized, oh, those aren't my peers. To them, I'm just some man in the woods who decided to say something ominous to them because they annoyed me. I realized there was an imbalance of power, definitely an imbalance of maturity, but maybe not even that much of an imbalance of maturity because what I did was really immature. The idea of basically threatening to like knock this kid out of a tree for annoying me on the beach—you know, not cool. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> like, like I look back at that because nothing. Because I mean, of course, like I'm not a fighter. I'm not. I'm not a, a dangerous person. But just like, I mean, I look back on it and laugh because it's like, wow, I can't believe I said that to those kids. And it, sh- it sure shut them up. It sure killed their high because they knew they couldn't get down from that tree. That's the thing is I was at the base of the tree. The only way they could get down was either through me or by falling off the cliff. So, I mean, they were actually in a difficult place if it turned out I was a psycho turns out I was just being an insecure asshole. But I did have this realization within a matter of steps. I went from being like, huh, I showed those little jerks to being like, man, I'm the jerk. I just said something really threatening and ominous to these teenagers. And it doesn't matter if they've gone through the ritual of high school graduation. It doesn't matter if they're legal adults because they're 18. There is a clear difference between me and them. Not that I'm some ultimate man Not that I'm some big old man, but I could just tell. I was like, oh, I can't do things like that anymore. Those aren't my peers. And then when you get into the idea that younger generations now just go into this extended childhood, it's even more true. You know, it just wasn't my place to behave that way. And I realized that as a man, I can't be doing things like that. Yeah, there's a time and a place like if those kids were trying to rob me, I would think of them as adults. And I would respond accordingly. I would probably do more than just give them a vague, ominous threat. So it gets back to that idea, though, of like charging somebody as an adult. Where I don't even think we should frame it that way. I don't think we should frame it as, oh, because he was 17 year old and he he was a 17 year old who committed a violent crime I'm not going to see him as a boy. I'm going to see him as a man. Like I said yesterday, I don't even think it comes down to manhood in that situation. This is how the courts should work. When a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old, for that matter, does something horrific and we decide to charge them as an adult, we should use this language. We should, we should say, we're charging him as Grendel. Just to get back to the Beowulf idea. We're not charging him as an adult. We're not saying he's a man. We're charging him as Grendel. We're charging him as an agent of evil. Not that we don't think he can be redeemed, but we have to do something with this Grendel. We can't let this Grendel haunt our banquet halls and kill people. We have to lock this thing up. So it's not even so much that a 17-year-old who does something horrific suddenly becomes a man... Because that almost sounds like a compliment. Oh, you you committed a horrific crime. So now you're going to go through the rite of passage of being charged as a man in court. Because we think of man as sort of an honor when someone becomes a man. So in that sense, when it's somebody who's done something bad, we should charge them as Grendel. You are now Grendel. You are now this amorphous embodiment of horror. And we'd like to believe that you can escape that we'd like to believe that you can redeem yourself and find the light but right now we're going to have to lock you up because you're Grendel and that means you are a problem so that's how we should approach that I should be a judge I should be a judge and say things like this to kids be like don't get it mixed up don't get it mixed up kid." Just because we have to say legally that we're charging you as an adult doesn't make you a man. As far as I'm concerned, you're Grendel. You're Grendel. And as a result, we're going to lock you up. I wish we could do more. I wish I could slay you like I'm Beowulf. I wish I could throw you from that tree like we did to the king of the beach. <laughs> Um, No, I'd lo- that'd be fun. That'd be fun. to The drama of a courtroom. I love a good courtroom drama. But no, yeah, we should get away from that when it's like, oh, it's like when someone crosses over into evil behavior, we can no longer see them as simply a child, especially if they're a teenager. And that's one of the things that makes teenagers so confusing is that they're physically capable, in many cases of acting as an adult man would, but we also know that they're not. We also know that there is some sort of boundary there, and especially now, because if it was 100 years ago and a 16-year-old had been working in a factory already for six years and he was married and he was going to serve in World War One, you know, it'd be a little different. You know, the, being a man was not some honor bestowed upon you It was just simply a fact of life. Because the whole teenager gray area is largely a product of pop culture. You know, you think about the era of the teenagers, rock and roll, the 1950s, the idea of going on joyrides, something that just wasn't even an option. The idea of teenage pop culture being a product of the 1950s in a way that you'd never saw that before. It's not that people didn't go through some kind of adolescence in their teenage years. You know, it's not like everybody became an adult immediately as a teenager in the 1920s, but there just really wasn't a cultural platform for it, which is why the 1950s were so significant, where the idea was like, you know, hey, spend these teenage years caring about girls, rock and roll and cars and trying to have fun. And then you see with the next generation you see with the when the baby boomers were that age in the mid to late 1960s, early 70s. The idea was, hey, you know, I know I know that. you know, we said just keep the teenage years limited to the teenage years and have f- focus on fun during your teenage years, not getting a factory job at 15 and starting a family yet. Wait till you're 20. You know, with the baby boomers, it became go off to college and keep having fun. Like treat your, treat your, the first half of your 20s like you're just having fun. Don't worry about anything. And then you can see with Gen X, it became, you know, it just keeps getting pushed back. This sort of, extended adolescence, extended childhood, extended immaturity. And I don't think there's anything wrong with immaturity in and of itself. It just has to end at some point. But you can see where with Gen X it was no longer was it, well, enjoy part of your 20s and just have fun. Focus on fun in your in your 20s. It became, well, hey, don't worry about real life until you're in your 30s. Keep having fun through your 20s. And then we can see now where it's like your 30s are seen as part of extended childhood. And I look at my peers, I'm 34, almost 35, and I look at myself as well as my peers, and I don't see adults in most cases. You know, some people have started families. I do see adults. But when I look at what people are focused on, which is fun, but they're not having much fun. The focus is on fun, but they're not having much fun. They're not getting much satisfaction. There's a lot of issues with substances. There's rampant depression and anxiety. People don't feel like they're meeting their goals. They're going through the phases of a teenager, they're reinventing themselves. They think that tattoos and dyed hair and fashion statements are going to give them some sense of meaning. fun. I mean, it's it really has reached a point where it's like, the only way to to keep having fun is to just become a clown. I'm going to become a tattooed clown. You know, eventually it did. It would go there, right? Eventually, it would go there where it's like, geez, my childhood just keeps getting pushed back farther and farther. It keeps getting extended. And now I'm 40. And I I don't feel like I've really satisfied my urge for fun. I just don't feel satisfied. So I guess what I'm finally going to do is just become a clown. I'm going to become a clown. You know, that's kind of where we're heading, right? We're all going to be, we're all going to go to, you know, I I just, I'm 40 years old and I just don't feel like I ever became a man. So instead, I'm going to go to clown school. Instead, I'm going to become a rodeo clown, a rodeo clown, You know, it seems like that's kind of where things inevitably go the further you extend childhood. And I feel as guilty of this as anybody. And I don't think you should feel guilty, but you should just recognize it for what it is. Where I do feel like there are certain elements of my adolescence that I've held on to. And part of it is because I like them. You know, I think you can genuinely like things. But the example I always use is, I mean, we live in a time where... Fathers and sons both are addicted to video games. Like, in previous eras, there was a much sharper distinction between what parents did and their kids did. And I'm not saying that was ideal, because the idea was is that your parents get boring. Like, I'm not saying you have to get boring as a parent, but the idea that it's like, yeah, me and my dad, we both wear... We both collect Funko Pop dolls and we wear Legend of Zelda shirts cuz my dad he's just as obsessed he's just as addicted to video games as I am. Oh, my dad and I, we both get up in the tree and yell at the beach, get off my beach. It's I'm the I'm the king of the beach, you know. Me and my dad do everything together cuz we're both addicted to video games. Like we live in a time where that's a reality. Like, I mean, there were other versions of that where it's like, you know, somebody could look at like my dad and I both love football and we've always connected over the NFL. And so someone could be like, oh, eh, you're like for my generation, someone could be like, it's kind of weird that you're into the same thing your dad's into. You're both into football, except I think in that case, it's like football is primal course i'm like justifying my own interests here but it's like football is primal you know it's violent it's competitive it is a manly exhibition you know um maybe video games are too oh me and my dad we both like to play uh, call of duty and shoot people me and my dad are both out we both have guns and we're shooting people in call of duty you know so maybe there's something to that maybe i'm just out of touch But I do think it is weird that parents now have way more in common with their kids than they ever did before. And it's not that the kids have taken on older people's interests. It's not like you don't see people where it's like, yeah, the the father and son are exactly alike in 2020. The kid reads the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you do have freaks like that. You do have like the future business leaders of America that are like, I'm going to be exactly like my grandpa, I'm going to wear a suit to school and read the Wall Street Journal. Video games? I read the Wall Street Journal. You know, there are freaky kids like that. Maybe. But those aren't the examples you see. Like, you don't see kids like that. Where it's like, oh, the father and son are exactly alike. They're both reading the Wall Street Journal. Instead, it's like they're both wearing pixel shirts. They're both wearing pixel art shirts of Legend of Zelda. You know, you're more likely to see that. So it's more that the father, it's more that the older generations have held on to what we consider childhood interests. And is there something horribly wrong with that? I don't know, but it's worth pointing out. I don't want this to be a total condemnation. I don't want this to come across that way. Because, as I said, I'm guilty of this in my own way. I'm certainly guilty of this. Uh, You know, I don't have a Legend of Zelda shirt yet. But, uh, you know, I'm certainly guilty of holding on to aspects of my teenage years for sure. And, you know, it's, it's just it's the nostalgia industry as well. You know, nostalgia became not just something that you incidentally experience. Like it used to be where if there was a cartoon on TV when you were a kid, you might never see it again. Unless some show, unless some TV channel did reruns much later. But it's like if there was some kind of toy from your childhood, unless you kept all your toys, you might never see it again unless you went to a junk shop or a secondhand store. Whereas now, it's just, you're saturated in nostalgia. You know, things have been reissued, for one. So if you want to buy it, you can. I mean, that's been going on for a long time. But also just the the invention and popularity of the Internet, it became this primarily a way in many cases to experience nostalgia all the time and it's not surprising that that became an entire industry where people are wearing their nostalgia so it's not even really nostalgia anymore it's just simply this constant it's something that's never ended you know you're constantly immersed in nostalgia and therefore it's not even nostalgia anymore you just never went through a phase in your life where you weren't obsessed with Legend of Zelda. <laughs> you know? Like, you think about people today where they they never had a period in their life where they weren't playing Legend of Zelda and now they're 50 years old. And their son is going to play Legend of Zelda just like them. Just something to be aware of. You know? Just something to be aware of, really. And... Uh, I don't know manhood I think you can define it in your own way I think part of being a man is having an individual approach not seeing yourself as completely separate because there is a brotherhood there is a brotherhood of manhood I mean I think manhood is a form of brotherhood but I think that that brotherhood celebrates individuality, as long as it isn't some kind of threat, as long as it isn't some kind of, as long as it isn't at odds, you know, with with like, the collective really is basically what it comes down to, because there's a lot of room for individuality. There's a lot of room for individual manhood without needing to challenge the entire concept of manhood, which is exactly what we've been seeing now in recent decades, where it's like there's this attempt to redefine manhood by completely toppling everything that manhood has always represented, and that's not the right approach to me. I think you can mutate underneath. You can be your own mutant man underneath the surface without needing to completely topple the entire system because you don't feel macho or you think that some men are toxic or you don't like football you know you don't need to topple the entire structure because you don't fit into some stereotype perfectly i mean the idea of manhood has continually evolved it's not like it's remained static again each set of each generation of men have different tools available to them Each generation of men have different modes and means for expressing what it is to be a man. And what it is to be a man is an individual experience. Even though it is part of something eternal. It is part of something timeless. And no matter what people do to suppress that, it will always rise up. And I have a lot of... I I have a lot of... Faith in what that can be. And I try to do my own part, both for myself and because I think there is some sort of ideal in that. I think there is some sort of ideal in this constantly evolving, yet consistent idea of manhood and what it means to be an individual man and part of the brotherhood of all men. It doesn't mean you have to treat everybody like your brother, but I think you have to intuitively understand that that's part of what it is to be one of them, to be one of us. This land Where children can run free, so take.